Father in heaven, we invite you to be with us yet again this afternoon. Many of us are wrestling with what it is that you're trying to tell us. We're learning new things. We recognize that there's so much more that you want to do in our lives and for our lives. We recognize many times how often we have squandered opportunities to draw near to you. But yet you love us and you are gracious and merciful and merciful God. Like that loving father in Luke 15 who went out every morning to look at the horizon waiting for his son to come home. You do the same with us and you long for us to come to you and to cry at your shoulder and say, Oh God, forgive me. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Make me a servant, a hired hand. But we know that you will not allow us to say that and you will bring the robe and the ring and the sandals and say, No one say anything about this son of mine except that he has come home. Father, that is your love for us, abiding, enduring. I pray that you please guide us this afternoon as we learn more about how you want to teach us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Meditation of My Heart, Thursday, Session 4. The life you've always wanted, if you are, if you live a very busy Christian life, it's good for you to read this book. He, uh, he has a real ability with words. And he tells the story once he went to Chicago. It was a new ministry. He started uh, with a new church there. And he was a young pastor and he longed to get some piece of wisdom from a, friend, a trusted friend who really, um, uh, who really, re he respected. And, uh, and so he called him up, he lived in so somewhere else in the country, and he called him up and says, you know, I am, I'm facing this ministry, I'm really eager to go to God's will on this, I you have any words of wisdom for me? And there was silence on the other line, on the other side of the line, a long pause. And finally, his friend says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And he thought, well, you know, I thought I've expected something more profound. And that's what he said. Another long pause. Alright? And then he said to him, he says, okay, I've written that one down. I told him, you know, a little impatiently, that's a good one. What else? Okay, you know, give, give, give me the real wisdom. A long pause after that, he says, there's nothing else. A famous psychologist, Carl Jung, once said, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. <laughs> and how true, of course, this is an analogy, but how true that is. How true that is, busyness has done more to keep us out of understanding activity, activity, 
more from, from helping us understand who God is and who we are in Him than just about anything else. You see, we have cell phones now, and we have internet, and we have email, and we have texting, and we have, we are connected. We have MySpace, and we have, you know, all of that. We are so connected with everybody in the world and in nearby galaxies <laughs> that the truth of the matter is that most of that has made us even be more anxious. You know, we got more things to do. I got 1,500 emails in my inbox. Ten years ago, I didn't have a one. It didn't exist. <laughs> my life was a lot simpler. So these things that are meant to simplify your life have actually complicated it in many ways. Listen to this statement by Ellen White in Counsels to Writers and Editors 125. One reason that there is not more sincere piety and religious fervor is because the mind is occupied with unimportant things. And there is no time to meditate, search the scriptures, or pray. That takes time. That just takes time. If you want to know, if, if you want to understand some of what we just went through in the last session, that doesn't come across after reading two or three verses. It doesn't come across after thinking for ten minutes. It takes time to put these pieces together. And it takes, it takes time that will need to be taken out of somewhere else. Because you, 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 can't, you don't have the luxury of asking God, God, it would have been okay for me to have had 18 hours this day, but tomorrow I need 26 to make it happen. So would you please stretch it? You know, the only time God stretched time, you know when he, when he did, he did stretch time one time. I know you're thinking probably about Joshua and the sitting of the sun. He didn't stretch time then. He just made something really funny with the sun, and I don't know what that is. It was when he created the Sabbath. He was done. After six days, the Bible says, he was done. All creation was done. So what did he do? He looked at Adam and Eve and says, these are my special creation. These are my friends. What could I give him that is the best gift I can give anyone who I love? And think about, what is the best gift you can give to anyone whom you really love? Your time. That's the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems with parents and children. Because we parents don't spend enough time with our kids. That's the biggest problem with marital issues because they don't take enough time to spend with it, to do things together. And when you really want to, when you really want to benefit somebody, you give them your time. That's exactly what God did. Right? And that's what it takes to know God. It takes time to know God. And if you're going to meditate, it takes more time. Many Christians are nervous about meditation. Says, ooh, that's a new age word. You know, and you have these pictures, you know, these girl and um, you know, I'm really coming to myself, my center self, all of that nonsense. And it is dangerous to do that. And there is there are techniques, you know, a lot of these yoga techniques, don't even mess with it. Don't even mess with it. That's going to lead you into a path that eventually you're going to have a difficult time getting out of it. But there is such a thing as Christian biblical meditation. 
Here are some meditators, all right? Isaac was a meditator, according to Genesis 24. He was meditating in the fields when his wife-to-be showed up in the horizon. Interesting. He was caught thinking about God, talking with God at that time. David was a meditator. It says that he, I mean, David says that time and time again. He's constantly, he's meditating on God, meditating on the Word of God. Or Mary. Mary said, when the angel said, you know, you're going to have a child and you're not going to know any man. And so, what did she say? Well, she pondered these things in her heart. In other words, she kept thinking about what the angel said. She didn't just drop it and say, oh, well, that's interesting. Next, let's do something else. <laughs> she, she actually thought through this. She, she brewed over that. She says, I wonder what God meant by that. I wonder what he's saying about this. And then Timothy, you know, Paul says to Timothy that um, he told Timothy how important it is for him to meditate in Scripture, to think about the things that he had learned before. When Joshua was under pressure, remember Moses died. Moses was a demigod for the Israelites. You know what I mean? Moses was the, the embodiment of what God was. He, they had no concept of God except for what they could see in Moses. And here it is, you're supposed to step into that guy's shoes. No pressure. So when he was under great pressure, he cried out to God. You know, he, he went on a walk. And he was met with Jesus who reassured him. But before that, you find, uh, we find uh, in Joshua chapter 1, that Christ gave him the key to his success as the, as the successor of Moses. Be strong. This, one of, this is, you know, when I was a child, I didn't choose Psalm 23. I chose this, this text for some reason. I can't, I don't know why. I love this text. Be strong. That's my favorite text, you know. <laughs> Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it, day and night. So, so what? So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then you will be prosperous and successful. Well, you want to know what the secret of success is according to the Bible? Here it is. Here's the secret of success. You want to know the secret. God is not against success. God wants you to succeed. And the word success there is success in the, in the very much in the English word success. You know, prosperity and, 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 and for things to work out according to the way it's supposed to work out. That's success. You want to have success? God says, do these things. Don't let the word of God, the book of the law, that was, that was a reference to the five books of Moses. In other words, everything that Moses had written. It is not simply a reference to the commandments of God. It is not simply a reference to the, the, the uh, laws uh, regarding the sanctuary or the civic laws. It's everything that Moses had written down, given to him by God. The entire piece. One of it, part of it was inside the ark. The rest of it was outside the ark. All of it. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. In other words, what we're talking about is three M's. The, you know, M and M and M's. <laughs> Mouth it. Meditate on it. March on by it. Speak of it, he says. Meditate on it. March on by it. In other words, do according to what it says. 
March on by it. Or you want my P? Here it is, a P. Proclaim it, ponder it, practice it. There is the key to your success. That's what Joshua was told. Do these three things with the word. With the word. Now, it says meditate, right? That's one of the three things. Meditate. Now, let me ask you. Let's meditate. <laughs> let's meditate. This is what it means to do this. Let's pull it apart. Why? Why does it say meditate after it says mouth it? Wouldn't it make more sense to meditate first before you mouth it off? Wouldn't it? Okay, here's the first challenge. Why does God put it in that, in that order? Why does He say to mouth it first and then meditate on it? You would think that, that, that you know, it's like that's irresponsible. You know, you, you need to know what you're saying before you say it, right? God says, say it and then think about it. Why? Okay, give me, this is the first test. This is the first test of meditation. This is what God wants us to do with His Word. Keep asking the questions, why? Why does God say? So, somebody, no, no, no answer is the wrong answer. Just give it a try. Why? Okay, when you say it out, you hear your voice, so what you're really saying is that expression deepens impression. That's the, the law of evangelism, too. That's why people, evangelists call people to make decisions to stand up, you know. Chelsea did that this afternoon, this, you know, at noon. She says, you know, I want you to come forward, I want you to stand up. Whenever we do something, it confirms that more so, our decision. Good point, but not right. But it's all right, you know, it's all right. No, I'm not being as extreme, but uh, it's not quite there yet. Yes? It is to have it in memory so that we can meditate it with, uh, have that in memory so we can have it with it throughout the day so we can meditate on it. Okay, now that uh, gets a little closer. In other words, that makes it a little more sense, at least to me. If you say that, the more you say that, the, more, the easier it is for you to keep it in mind. Yeah, and of course, uh, you said some of that. Okay? Yes? You, you, you're, you're out. Yeah. Okay, so you're saying that maybe when you speak it, the Lord it gives the Lord opportunity to share something more with you. All right. Uh, yes. When you speak it, you memorize it, so you can meditate. You have to remember it. All right. So the more you speak it, the more you would remember it, and and, and that leads you to meditating on that. There was somebody. Yes, please. I'm sorry. It, it reinforces commitment. Okay. All of those are very interesting answers. And, 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 and not bad. But that's why we need to look at context. Okay, yes, one more. Okay, so what you're saying is an issue of obedience. The, the, the Spirit of God may impress that, and so you, you just, you're, you're saying it because the Spirit is prompting you to do that. Um, I'd like to suggest that the context is a very unique context that may not apply in every situation here, and that's why you need to look at context in the Bible. Hmm? You can't make the Bible, a lot of good, sincere people make the Bible say all kinds of things. They're not bad things, they're just not accurate. 
because they ignore context. What was the context? What's the issue with Joshua? Why would God say this to Joshua? What is going on in Joshua's life? Is Joshua bold at this point and ready and you know, says, Boy, I've been waiting for Moses to die, to kick the bucket so I could really take it over. You know, I'm so ready. Not at all. Joshua is timid and afraid and he's, he's shaking in his boots. Joshua is saying, I, I can hardly stand it here. I think I'm going to, you know, have an accident right now, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to be a little more graphic, but I decided not to. We're on tape and there are children in the, in the room. Um, the, and so, that, that, is, that is the context so what God says, what God said, when God says, I want you to say it, that's counterintuitive for Joshua. I want you to say that is what you need more than anything right now. You need to say it as if you really believed it. Say it, that is going to bring up courage in your own heart in the process. So that's why he tells him that. I think that, that's the reason he tells him that to begin with. For us, it doesn't make a lot of difference whether it is one or the other in the order in, in, in which it is. What is clear is that you have these three components. You see, here's my point. Ellen White makes that point. It was with great anxiety and self-distrust that Joshua had looked forward to the work before him. So he was not being bold. So Jesus says, I want you to speak it, to say it, and that will bring some boldness in the process. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you may have uh, read some of his work, The Cost of Discipleship or Life Together. He was a martyr, a Christian martyr, because he went against, he was a Lutheran pastor who went against the Nazis, all right? And uh, he was th thrown in a concentration camp. Uh, and his writings are very profound, really. Um, and he was once asked this question, Why do you meditate? And he shot back very clearly, he says, because I'm a Christian. In other words, for him, it would not be Christian not to. I meditate because I'm a Christian. Jesus meditated too. I, we, we read this from before. He studied the Word of God, and his hours of greatest happiness were found when he could turn aside from the scene of his labors to go into the fields to meditate in the quiet valleys. You see, to meditate in the quiet valleys, to hold communion with God on the mountainside amid the trees of the forest. The early morning often found him in some secluded place meditating, second time mentioned, searching the scriptures or in prayer. The Word of God is not meant to be like um, a smoothie. You know, unless the smoothie is really uh, cold, sometimes it's really cold, then you let it uh, swirl around your mouth to warm it up a little bit before, it, you know, you swallow it and then you get a headache. Um, the Word of God is, is real meat, Peter says. That's meat, the meat of the Word. And what do you do with meat? Well, hopefully most of us don't eat it. <laughs> But with meat, you need to chew it, right? Because if you get meat in your mouth and don't chew it, 
if you just swallow whole pieces of meat, what do you think it's going to happen? Soon, I mean, your body's going to say, what are you doing to me? Hmm? And eventually it's going to come back, right? You need to chew that. You need to break it down more and more and more and more. That is what the Word of God is intended to do. To be broken down. Secular meditation focuses on personal centeredness. That's why it's dangerous. That's inner peace, relaxation. That's really what leads people to say, I am God, like uh, Shirley MacLaine. I remember watching that live. Shirley MacLaine says, I am God, you know, on the beach in California. I, I am God. It, it, great discovery. I'm, in, I'm God. Well, that's what happens with centered-based meditation. But Christian meditation, Christian meditation focuses on God's Word. And that is why we meditate. It is on God's Word. For instance, let's take a look at uh, Psalm 119, okay? Psalm 119. And why am I stressing meditation? Because this is a component that we, many of us do not practice, which is going to be necessary if we are going to find out the voice of God. If we're going to understand what God is trying to tell us. He's going to tell us as we meditate on Scripture what it is that He wants us to understand. A few, a few examples. Verse 15. I will meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. Verse 48. I shall lift up my hands to, the, to thy commandments which I love. I will meditate on thy statutes. Verse 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on thy precepts. 148. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on that word. In other words, I, I can't wait. Think about it. I can't wait until the evening until, so I can get up early in the morning and, and think about what you're saying. Wow. Huh? Merely to hear or to read the word is not enough, Ellen White says. Christ's Object Lessons, 59 and 60. He who desires to be profited by the scriptures. Now this is really good. He who desires to be profited by the scriptures must meditate upon the truth that has been presented to him. You want to really get the most out of it? You got to meditate on the scriptures. You can't just read three, three chapters and say, that was good. I put in my 15 minutes or my 20 minutes. That's not, that's not going to go very far. That's like getting a, that's like, 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 get, you know, getting a spoon, putting something in your mouth, food in your mouth, and just saying, that was good, and then spitting it out. <laughs> that's just tasting something. That's not going to give you any life until you chew it down, and it becomes a part of your bloodstream. Huh? And, and meditation takes that. It, chewing takes that. The meditation of my heart, the psalmist said, shall be of understanding. In other words, that's what it, meditation would lead to. I will understand you as a result of it. Huh? So, let's, let's get practical. There's a subject of meditation, there's a method to meditate, and there's a reason why we meditate. The what of meditation is the subject. The how of meditation is the method. The why of meditation is the reason. Let's take one at a time. The subject of my meditation. The Bible, I've looked through the entire Bible, every word in the Bible that says about meditation, or to meditate, or to ponder, etc., etc. And these are the three things that appear to be clear from Scripture that we should meditate upon. Number one, 
the commandments of God. And you say, well, I, I wish it would have been something more exciting than that. But yeah, it is the commandments of God. Just stay with me. For instance, 119.97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. That's what David says. How I love thy law. Wow, most of us probably would not be able to say that. How did he get to that point? Well, probably because he meditated on the law of God, and so that's, that's something that led him to it. Or, verse 15, I will meditate in your precepts. Or, verse 23, thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. So time and time again, in, in the f most famous scripture chapter, you know, 119, which, by the way, David Livingston, I think I have it somewhere late. Yeah, here it is. Whoa, amazing. Dr. David Livingston, the great explorer, missionary, memorized Psalm 119 at the age of nine. That's 176 verses. Maybe, just maybe, that is the reason why he was so smart. You know what he did? He was a, he was a, a, a he was a biologist, he was a botanist, he was a, an organist, he was a, theo a theologian, he was an explorer, he was, you know, he was all of these things and he did them well. Well, maybe it has to do with the fact that he has stored so much of the Word of God in his mind. It is, Ellen White says in Amazing Grace 228, it is what we meditate upon that will give tone and strength to our spiritual na nature. So what is it that you're meditating on that, that'll shape you, that'll shape your spiritual uh, experience, alright? Why then should we need to meditate on God's law, right? Doesn't that sound legalistic? Oh, I'm meditating on God's law. You know, that sounds like a scribe out there in, you know, with the phylacteries, you know, and all that stuff, and going like this by the western wall, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, those are the pictures we have, you know, meditating on God's law. You know, why, why couldn't we, why couldn't the Bible say, you know, you need to meditate on, on more worthy things like loving others or the cross of Christ or... But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, time and again, Meditate on God's law. Why? Well, we got to meditate on that too. You got to meditate on that. Well, perhaps because Exodus 33 tells us that God's law, and I'm making a shortcut through all this, but uh, God's law is His character. God's law is the imprint of His character. It's what God is really like in words. But that doesn't come across to us very clearly or very easily, does it? When you, when you read, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know, it says, okay, you know, whatever. So that means, I, you know, I shouldn't goof around like, you know, alright, that's what it means. And you stop there, right? Or, or he says, you know, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, okay, whatever, that's good, that's clear. And we don't go beyond, right? When we don't go beyond that, when we don't keep thinking about what that may mean, is when we miss most of what God wants to say. You know why? Because the Bible says in Psalm 119 that His commandments are exceedingly broad. In other words, the more you think about it, the more it stretches. 
the more you really try to, the more you understand more and more and more and more things. It's, oh yeah, that's what, oh, oh, oh yeah, I see that connection with, oh, oh yeah, oh, okay. You know, it's all of these points of discovery. But it doesn't happen until you meditate. In Revelation 14, verse 12, we're told that God's last day people will be distinguished by having the faith of Jesus, right? And they will be keeping the commandments of God. So if we are going to be distinguished by keeping the commandments of God, it is not going to happen in a legalistic way because we're going to have the faith of Jesus. And so when you have the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, you have understood something about the commandments of God that is different than mere legalism. You have actually understood what God is really like. And that's why you honor the commandments of God. Because you understand what He is like, what's behind that. Let me illustrate that. That's why, you know, the Bible says, the commandments of God are exceedingly broad. So 1 Son 119, verse 96. The Sermon on the Mount is the typical example of what I'm talking about. You remember reading the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, 6 and 7, right? And then when Jesus begins to, after the Beatitudes and after the, the speech about the salt, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, then he talks about how the law of God, four verses, he says, you know, that uh, you better exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and really keep the commandments of God. And he really stresses that and, and that, that not a jot or a tittle will be done away with without all being fulfilled, etc., etc. So he makes a little point about the commandments of God or the law of God, and then he starts illustrating it. What verse would that be? That would be about verse 22 or 3 or something like that, chapter 5. And then he begins six times. He gives six examples. The first one is from the Decalogue, from the law of God. You have heard it say, well, let's just go to it. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. You shall not kill, right? What commandment is that? Number? Number? Six, right? Number six. You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, which meant, um, you dumb, dumbo, basically, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, that meant, you idiot. It was, it was a stronger thing. The, uh, the, the first one was, you really are lacking mental acumen, and the second one is, you are morally bankrupt. That's basically what it said. <laughs> you sh shall be guilty enough to go into, the f into hell. Woo! In other words, that's breaking the commandment right there. When you hate somebody, when you dislike somebody, when you think less of them, you're breaking that commandment, Jesus says. If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your, brother, your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge and, to the, and the judge of the officer and you be thrown in prison. That's one example. 
And then Jesus goes away from the Decalogue. So in other words, he's breaking down the reason, what's the spirit behind the letter? The letter says, you shall not commit uh, you know, murder. You shall not kill. So, if I just refrain from hitting her lethally, I have, I have kept the commandment. No. If I don't like her, if I dislike her, if I think that anything that, you know, less of her value, I am breaking that commandment. What Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. God doesn't think that way about other people. I want you to think of other people like God thinks of you. God thinks that you're extremely valuable. God would not think of you or anything less than anything else. God thinks that you're the biggest thing in the world. That's why He has died for you. And that's what He wants you to understand, how He needs you to treat other people. That is the spirit of the law. That is how you see how that reflects the character of God. Ah, that happens the more you meditate on that law. And then you say, oh God, there's a lot more to what you're saying than just these mere words. And the whole thing ends, you know, in chapter 5. Eventually when he says, you know, you've heard say, he, he goes into rabbinical laws even. Uh, verse 43, you heard say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then be, be perfect as I have, as, uh, as my heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, the, you, you need to reflect the character of your Father, of, of God, if that, is to be making, if that is to make any difference in the world. So basically, we must assimilate into our lives the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. The lack of meditation on the Word of God is what has made good Christians legalists. Because they have not seen the undergirding reason why God says what He says. That was the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes. They just saw the letter of the law. They wanted to enforce the letter of the law without understanding why God said what He said. And so they were legalistic and they lost it all. That's why Jesus was in front of them and they couldn't see Him. This is what it means to be like our Father in Heaven. To understand the spirit of the law. And that, my friends, takes meditation. That takes time to assimilate. You need to chew on it. You need to, to mull it over. You need to think some more on it. So that's the first subject of our meditation. Second one, the goodness of God. That is l l less mentioned in Scripture, but it is mentioned. My soul shall be satisfied, my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips, when I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in the night watches. And that is, when I think about you, how good you are to me. When I meditate on that, that is a good thing. So that's what it says that we need to do. Psalm 104.34 says, My meditation on him shall be sweet, and I will be glad in the Lord. When I think about what he is like, Alright, so that's the goodness of God. In the book Heavenly Places, page 14, Christ's sacrifice for fallen man has no parallel. It is the most exalted sacred theme on which we can meditate. Wow. Every heart that is enlightened by the grace of God is constrained to bow with inexpressible gratitude in adoration before the Redeemer for His infinite sacrifice. You know, 
I had a dramatic experience one time. Some of you have probably heard me say this. In uh, when I when many years ago, when I was a young professor at Southern, we used to have the school religion was in in Miller Hall. That's Miller Hall. Now it's modern languages. Um, one morning I went to do some research at five o'clock in the morning or so. I was really anxious to get to some things. But I came across a statement in the Zarvages, which I had read many times before, but that morning somehow it really clicked. And the more I thought about what I was reading, I just, it broke me down. It broke me down. Why? Because I began to really see, really see what Jesus had done for me. This is the statement, just briefly. You've read it. You've heard it. The spotless Son of God hung upon the cross. His flesh lacerated with stripes, those hands so often reached out in blessing, nailed to the wooden bars, those feet so tireless and ministries of love spiked to the tree, that royal head pierced by the crown of thorns, those quivering lips shaped by the, to the cry of woe, in all that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, his feet, the agony that racked his frame, and the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face, speaks to each child of humanity, declaring, It is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. I couldn't get past this. That morning I couldn't get past that. I, I, I understood better than ever before that God, that God, my God, as Charles Wesley would say, did this for me, for who am I? I kept crying. I, I just started crying out to God. I was alone in that building and I said, God, why, 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 why do you love me so much? Who am I? Who am I that you would do this for me? That I would be so important to you? I don't even think that I'm that important and I'm pretty egotistical. Why would you do this for me? And I just couldn't. I kept going back and then um, I started crying. I couldn't read it anymore. I, I went back. I tried to, you know, wipe my tears away and read it again. And I just couldn't. And, and finally, you know, and I, I, it is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. For thee he spoils the domain of death and opens the gates of paradise. He who stilled the angry waves and walked the foam-capped billows, who made devils tremble and disease flee, who opened blind eyes and called forth the dead to life, offers himself upon the cross as a sacrifice. And this from love to thee. He, the sin-bearer, endures the wrath of divine justice and for thy sake becomes sin itself. The more I thought about it, the more reduced I became to an overwhelming impression of the love of God. I was so overcome by it, I'll be honest with you. It, it is a very private experience and I was glad that I didn't... I think that if people had seen me, they would have thought that I had, had just gone crazy. I literally cried out saying, God, why do you love me so much? And I asked him, at one point I asked him, please do not show me any more of that love. I, 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 will, I will not be able to take it. I will explode. 
Well, the Bible says we need to meditate on the goodness of God. We need to meditate on what He has done for us. That Ellen White says that that softens our minds. It softens our hearts. It is nearly irresistible to be faced with the love of God. You cannot resist the love of God if, in true fact, if you truly see it for what it is. And that happens, again, as you think through that, as you allow it to, to parade in your mind. So that's the goodness of God to me. The third subject of meditation according to Scripture, and I didn't find in another one. These are the three. The third subject of meditation is God's works and ways. In other words, God's creations. How God does things. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds, God says. You know, His interventions for you. What God has done in the world. What God does for other people, etc. Uh, I will, or Psalm 143.5, I, I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. That's creation, what God has done in the, in the cosmos. And so, that is why Ellen White, now it makes sense to me, that's why Ellen White says that nature is a, is, is a second book of God. Because that allows us to think, to ponder on what God has done for us. And to think through that and says, why did you do this? And why did you do that? Or how wonder, how good, how did you do this, God? You know, you know I remember when the Hubble, you know, the first Hubble pictures came out about 10 years ago. This was one of them. And I can't remember, the, the, it was kind of the finger, somebody called it the finger of God or something like that. This, this, it was a reference to this one. You see that? That thing from here to there, it's like, I don't know how many gazillion light years. It's a humongous distance. Totally beyond our comprehension. And I'm thinking, whoa, that's just a little piece here. How big God is. How amazing He is. That very thing, you see, here's, here's a bigger, a little closer. For behold, He said to Amos, He who forms mountains and creates the wind declares to man what are his thoughts. God has done all of these things and He is able to interpret for you what you're thinking. What you're thinking. And that takes meditation. Um, Psalm 8, verse uh, 4 and 5, When I considered your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In other words, when I see what, what God has done, what God is in, you know, I'm saying, I'm so small, why would you even think of me? And yet you do. You really do. That's amazing. That's amazing. So how would you meditate? That's the second one. How would you, that's a method. How would you meditate? This is simple and quick. This guy is Leslie Harding. I learned it from him because I don't have any other means for it. I don't, I don't know of any other sources. And I asked him one day because he's in a walking Bible encyclopedia. He, knows so, he knew so much about the Bible. He has since passed away, you know, several years ago. Um, but I, I spent many days, he used to live uh, relatively close to where my parents lived, so every time I, w I visited to my, my parents, I would visit with him, and I, we would spend three or four hours talking about the Bible. And the guy just, I mean, just oozed out the scriptures. 
When I was a pastor, I invited him several times to speak. You know, and I asked him one time, I said, Dr. Harding, how is it that you know, what, how, what, what would you say is the best way to study the Bible? And without hesitation, he shot right back and he said, little and often. And I said, little and often? What does that mean? He says, read the Bible in the morning, first thing, when you wake up, just read some of it. And then go and brush your teeth and think about what you just read. And then come back and read it again. And, and, and you know, once you're dressed and stuff, and really read it and, and, and engage with that. And then go about your work. Take a break, go back and read it again and think through that again. And then do something else. And then at noon, just read it again, think about it again, and then come back. He says, that's how he does it. And I'm thinking, that makes a lot of sense. You know why? You know, I've been a preacher since I was 17 years old, and the best sermons have always been the ones that have been well cooked. In other words, not the ones that I thought about last night out of a, 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 an epiphany, a brilliant thought. Oh, wow, yeah, this is a brilliant thought. I'm going to share that with the brethren. No, it's the ones that have been simmering for months. That is the result of meditation when you really think through things and you say, oh, 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 and then you discover more and more things about it and you say, oh, now this begins to make sense. That takes meditation. That's what the little and often is all about. It's better, in many ways, to come back to it a number of times all throughout the day than having two hours, and some days you will need that, two hours into that and really... But that's usually when you have to wrestle something out with God. But as far as Bible study, to come back to it, and to come back to it, and to rethink about it. Whenever people, young people ask me, so how do you study Bible? How do you get some of these insights from Scripture without reading it from anywhere else? Well, it comes by thinking through that. You just need to keep asking God the question. This is a dialogue with God. Why do you say this? Why do you use this word? Why don't you say this? Now you said this in another place, but it is in this context. Why are you saying, why are you changing your tune here? Give me an explanation. When you engage with God, that, that's, that's meditating. That's thinking through things. And God delights to open your mind because you really want to know what He says. And God knows that that is life. What God says is life. The Word of God is life. So, there is but little benefit in heavenly places 138 derived from a hasty reading of the scriptures. You may read the Bible through and yet fail to see its beauty or to comprehend its deep and hidden meaning. One passage studied until its significance is clear to the mind and its relation to the plan of salvation is evident is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. Keep your Bible with you. As you have opportunity, read it. Fix the text in your memory. Even when you're walking the streets, you may read a passage and meditate upon it, thus fixing it in mind. You know who practiced that? Became famous for it? You have heard of HMS Richards, haven't you? He was the founder of the Voice of Prophecy. He was a unparalleled in his preaching and in his, in his ability to persuade people. He was a giant in the Adventist church. He did things that nobody did because he had so much trust in God. You know what he did? He chose, in, his, in the 20s, he chose 
not to learn how to drive. You know why? So he would have more time to read. And so he would, ha he would have to depend on somebody else to drive all the time. <laughs> and the man dead at the age of 85, he didn't know how to ride, uh, drive. But he, I, I remember I worked in the Words of Prophecy when I was a college student. When I was a freshman, I worked in the Words of Prophecy two summers in a row. And I would see the man. It was in the early 80s. He was still around. You know what? Every time I saw the man walk, he had a Bible or a book in his hand. The guy was constantly reading. He read the Bible 180 times from cover to cover. And then he stopped counting. No wonder... God was able to do amazing things through him. So she says, keep that close. Keep reading it. It doesn't matter what you don't understand. This is where people get discouraged. Oh, you know, I just read those five verses in it. Yeah, ah, this, you know. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you don't understand. Just keep coming back to it. Keep coming back. The 15th time you read it, a light is going to come on. And when you start seeing some lights come on, you say, Oh, this is exciting. This actually makes sense. And so you're going to start going back to it and making it more and more. And don't worry about what, you know, you say, well, I, I, I've had, I, I was doing really good with this, and then I come to this book and I, nothing makes sense. Don't worry about what doesn't make sense. Keep reading. Keep thinking about it. Keep thinking about it. Yeah, it is a benefit. You know, if, you, if you're theologically trained, if you read commentaries, if you read a lot of history, if you understand background, all of that, all of that helps. But it is not absolutely necessary. Because the Bible is meant for regular people to, re to read it, to chew on it. And God will display Himself. So why? The third point. Why must we meditate on Scripture? You like this guy? I like this picture. You know, a, you like that picture? It's a great hairdo, isn't it? Yeah. I look cool. This is George Mueller, famous George Mueller. How many of you know who George Mueller is? You've heard about it? Yeah. George Mueller is probably one of the most famous Christians in the last 200 years. He was a powerful man of faith. He was the guy that uh, sustained 10,000 orphans at one point in Wales without a single penny, without a foundation, without a church, without uh, fundraising, without um, any source of income. He made a decision shortly after he became a Christian. He became a Christian when he was 16, 17, 18. He was a, a world-loving, carousing, good-for-nothing kid. And then he met Jesus and he surrendered all. And then he, he read scripture and, and he's, he noticed that men and women of faith, and he says, why couldn't we live by faith? So he says, God, I make a pledge to you. I will never ask anyone for anything before praying to you. I'm going to ask you for everything. And I'm going to depend on you. And that's exactly how it happened. And, and he sustained a staff of three to four hundred people. And money came on a daily basis. You know, famous stories like having hundreds of kids ready to eat breakfast, thanking God for the food and not having a stitch of food. Not, not, nothing. Nothing. Everything was, you know, coffers all empty. But while they prayed, two trucks will stop by in the front. In the front. One full of milk. A big, big, like an oil rig, you know, truck full of milk. 
the other one full of bread. And, and the drivers come out, you know, they come at the end of prayer and says, folks, sorry to interrupt. We're supposed to go to such and such place. We recognize that we lost our way. By the time we get there, this milk is going to be spoiled. Can you use it? Thank you, God. You know, that kind of, I mean, story like this, time and time and time again. The equivalent of $180 million raised just on his knees. Well, that was a man of prayer and faith. So it'll be surprising to you what we read from him. Listen carefully. The point is this, he says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. That's the first thing. Need to, I need to be happy in Jesus. How I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. Before this time, my practice had been to give myself to prayer. He says, for about 10 years. To give myself to prayer after having dressed in the morning. Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word and to meditation on it. And that thus, whilst meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. I often astonished, it often astonished me that I did not see the importance of meditation upon Scripture earlier in my Christian life. As the outward man is not fit to work for work for any length of time unless he eats, so it is the inner man. What is the food of the inner man? Not prayer, huh? but the Word of God. Not the simple reading of the Word of God. No, we must consider what we read. Ponder over it. Through His Word, our Father speaks to us. The weaker we are, the more meditation we need. Wow! So this great man of faith and prayer said the more important thing, more important than faith and prayer, is to read the Word of God and meditate on it. That's how he became a man of faith and prayer. So I slow down in order to know about Him, but I meditate in order to be one with Him. And our time is, is uh, what is the biggest challenge? Lack of time. We must first slow down and spend time on what really matters. To really know God. Uh, we're going to do some exercises. Uh, but our time is over. Uh, you might want to do this. Go, 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 go. Go home tonight. Look at Isaiah 56, for instance. Isaiah 56 talks about some really weird stuff. Uh, when you, you know, the first eight verses do not seem to correlate with the, with the next four or five verses. Think about it. I want you to meditate on it and see why. All right? Or here's this one. And, and we're going to just, uh, we're going to just read. We're, this is so, uh, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 3. Okay, let's just. To turn to that one real quick. Proverbs 3, a famous statement as a little exercise of meditation. Very simple. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, well known. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. That's what it says in the NASB. All right. So you read this and say, oh, okay, that's, that's clear. That's, there's no mystery there. i got to trust God, right? And you move on. Breakfast. Okay, go back. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. What does that mean? What does it mean with all your heart? What else can you think of Scripture when it says, with all your heart? 
And what does the Bible mean by heart? Now, think about the words. Is this about this triangular shaped, you know, organ that keeps beating, that is red? Is that... How can I trust with the heart? Think about it. Think about it. What does it mean? It cannot mean the physical heart. And then, and then you can go to the concordance and say, okay, what does God mean by heart then? And you will conclude very quickly that the heart is the will. And you say, ah, so God is saying, trust me with all your will. In other words, with all of who you are. Trust me with all of who you are. And this says, lean not on your own understanding. Visualize that. When, when you read the words, okay, lean, what does it, lean, what does it mean to lean? I'm leaning. Lean not on your own understanding. Okay, that table is my own understanding. I'm leaning on it. And God says, mm, don't do it. Why? Because this is going to collapse. My own understanding is not enough to sustain me. So in, it, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not only the problem that you have your own understanding. That's bad enough. The problem is you lean on it. You put your weight on it. So when you fall, you're really going to fall. Lean not on your own understanding. So you, you think about it. You, you take the words. You think about the words. You think about what God says. What else? Um, Direct your path. Why? Think about it. Make your path straight. That's what it says in the NASB, but that's what it means. Direct your path in the King James. Make your path straight. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about why make your path straight, your path straight, and not you straight. Why doesn't God say, don't lead on your own understanding, trust in me, and I will make you straight. He says, I'll make your paths straight. Why? Why? Give me an answer. What do you think? Why would God say, I am going to make your paths straight? In other words, here it is. Visualize it. You know, you're walking. You're going like this. You're going like this. You go, they're curvy. Now, your paths are, are crooked. Your paths are crooked. And God says, lean on me, and I'll make your paths straight. To do His will. Yeah. So your will will be His will. So that your will will be His will. Any other ideas? If He, if he makes us straight instead of a path, and He's taken away our free will, we choose Him. If He makes us straight instead of a path, He'll take a free will for us to choose Him. Okay? It's easier for God to give you directions. Easier for God to give you directions if He makes it straight. Well, I'm not sure. God can certainly give you directions in a very complicated uh, world and still make it make it happen. Is it because you'll get there quicker. Let's go back to the text. Verse six. The first part of verse six has the key. All in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Ways and paths are the same thing, right? It's, an, it's, it's the same concept. In all your ways acknowledge him. Can you acknowledge him when uh, you wanted to apply to 
this school and uh, they suddenly told you you don't have enough money you can't uh, you can you can't you can't make it uh, and as soon as you hear those bad news you say God thank you I am acknowledging what's happening in my life I'm acknowledging your your presence your intervention the fact that you're with me in all this do you tend to do that we tend to do that only when we agree that those things are good or good to us and then we acknowledge God God thank you for answering my prayer do we say God thank you for not answering my prayer do we say that with equal enthusiasm what God says in verse 6 he says in all your ways good and bad whatever happens to you acknowledge him in other words acknowledge that he is the one that is with you that he's he's leading you that he's directing you then what appears crooked you'll say you'll see straight what appears crooked says man this is a nightmare not if you acknowledge God for everything. If you acknowledge God for everything, all of a sudden everything that is crooked appears straight. Why? Because God is in absolute control and you have accepted that. So it doesn't matter how crooked it is, because to you it will appear just as straight as ever. You see, this is, I mean, it took us eight minutes to do that, five minutes to do that. That is what we need to do with the Word of God. We need to ask questions of it. We need to think through and say, why do you use this word? Why do we do that? Why, do, why are you saying that? But look at the text. Keep going back to the text. Keep going back to the text. And in the process, you will discover God behind it. And that is what gives life. Okay. We don't have time to finish this off. Uh, some other time. Alright. I slow down in order to know about Him, but I meditate in order to be one with Him. And that's, that's the end. I just want to encourage you, don't be discouraged. The Word of God is rich, very rich, and it's beautiful to do that. And the more you engage with the Word of God, the more, the more you're going to... You know what's going to happen in your life? You're going to ask the question, what do you want me to do less and less? You know why? Because you'll know. Because you'll know. Because you'll have a, a clearer and clearer sense of direction. Simply, automatically. You won't even need to check with Him and, uh, and then say, so, you know God, what do you want me to do? I know what you want me to do. Because it's become clear as I have read Scripture, as the Scripture has surfaced. It's a little bit like this. Uh, remember when you're walking in the beach and, and you have the tide come? Let's say that you, you have a, t a tide and, 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 and you put a little, a little marker with rocks in it and you're waiting for the tide to eventually come to that. Eventually the tide comes, it, it comes to the marker and covers it. But you know, you know what? It did the same thing for miles around the beach at the same time. That's exactly what happens with God. Whenever God really moves on you, He moves across the board. Not just on the one issue alone. Whenever He moves on you, He, he moves across the board. And a lot of things begin to get sorted out. More and more and more. 
all it's needed is God to is, is for us to say God have your way with it and I, I'm going to I'm going to search that I'm going to get into the Word of God I'm going to seek to understand that because you've already given me your will right here and I just can I can read it I can think through that all right how many of you want to say I, I want I want to get into the Bible a little bit more I want to get into the Bible to really know what God what God is trying to tell me all right let's stand up as we pray together Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us this time. It's, um, we could probably use a little bit more time, but this is probably as much as we need at this time. And we thank you for giving us the opportunity to reflect on these things. Help us, Lord Jesus, to connect with you through the Word of God. Because the more the printed Word becomes clear to us, the more the spoken word through the Spirit will become clear to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.